Celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. Do you mind if I ask you a question? Will you be my book Valentine? Well, technically, I suppose that's two questions. But it's Valentine's Day, so let's not split hairs. Welcome to the February edition of Book Choice here on Fine Music Radio. I'm your host, Paige Nick, and for the next hour, we'll be bringing you a whole lot of reviews of some great new books and some older books, as well as interviews with authors that I really think you're going to love, all sponsored by our friends at Exclusive Books, who we love. We have reviews of books from just about every genre, from an oldie non-fiction title by everyone's favorite neurologist, Oliver Sacks, to fiction from the very famous Colm Tobin. Then we have reviews of not one, but two books by Booker-nominated local author Karen Jennings, and a meaty review of the bestseller The Auschwitz Photographer by Maurizio Onis and Luca Kripper. Leanne Voicy tells us about two kiddies' titles, How Many Ways Can You Say Hello and How Many Ways Can You Say Goodbye, by Rafilo Moholi. And since UNESCO's Decade of Indigenous Languages starts this month, we also welcome a review of Rain Beast and a number of other multilingual titles by Nicholas Moritz. We're not short of author interviews this month either. John Hanks chats to the Stuarts about their non-fiction work on The Primates, and Philip Todras interviews Derek Frost about his living and loving in the age of AIDS, while Beryl Eichenberger chats to one of South Africa's most popular crime writers, Irma Fenter. So no matter what you're into, stay tuned. We have something for every reading palette. First up on the show, Vanessa Levenstein joins us with a roundup of her holiday reading. Hi, Vanessa. So I'm excited to hear what you've been up to. Holiday reading is a time for something old, new, borrowed, and, well, blue doesn't quite fit in here, because holiday reading isn't about the blues. Starting with something new, even though it had first been published in 2020, Jonathan Sachs's Morality, Restoring the Common Good in Divided Times, was my holiday purchase. This was the last work of the former chief rabbi of the Commonwealth, published posthumously. If you've read any of his books, listen to his talks, you'll know that this isn't any ordinary mind. He's one of the greats. Yet he writes in an accessible way, which makes one reflect, question and care. What I love about Sachs's writing is the many disciplines and influences he ties in, from Leonard Cohen to other religions. A case in point is the foreword to this book. It's written by the Archbishop of Canterbury. In Morality, Sachs writes about COVID, anxiety, loneliness, and a culture that leaves little room for tolerance and debate. And while he's clear about the dangers we face, his optimism shines through. He writes, The beautiful thing about morality, though, is it begins with us. We do not need to wait for a great political leader or an upturn in the economy. All it needs is for us to think about the we, not just the I. And immediately we change the tenor of our relationships. Jonathan Sachs makes sense of a world that doesn't make any sense. And his final work is almost a farewell gift, a blueprint on how to live a meaningful and moral life. Another something new book 
was Colm Tobin's The Magician, about the life and work of Thomas Mann. The last event I attended without a mask, pre-lockdown, was at the Baxter Theatre. The author, Colm Tobin, was speaking, and I was struck by his gentle and modest tone. His novel The Master about Henry James has always been one of my favourites. Likewise, The Magician is an extraordinary read on many levels. Not least of all a chilling reminder of how such a cultured society went on to burn books and build gas chambers. Tobin paints with subtle colours, the loving, unconventional and accepting marriage between Katya and Thomas. He makes each character fascinating in their own right, the man's own siblings, as well as their children. Family life is explored against the chilling, insidious rise of Nazi Germany. If you can get your hands on a copy of Thomas Mann's Death in Venice first, now that's something old, and then go on to The Magician, you'll discover something quite magical. My New Year's Day was spent with something borrowed, Dutch Courage by Paige Nick. She's up there with the really good funny writers who get comedy starts with first finding the truth, both character and plot, and once you've nailed that, you can add the humour. Grace is about to get married and start her life as a teacher when a series of events find her packing her bags, using her sister's passport and flying to Amsterdam. She soon finds that her job impersonating Rihanna involves quite a bit more and quite a few clothes less than she'd bargained for. I love the sisterhood in the book, both the relationship between real sisters and new friends. The author writes with integrity in a way that is funny and offbeat but not dismissive of the stakes involved. There are delicious, unexpected twists in this ultimately feel-good read. Then it was time for a visit to the library for another something borrowed. I found Karen Jennings' Travels with My Father, an autobiographical novel. The book was first checked out in 2018, and kudos to all the readers who discovered this writer without having to be prompted by the Booker Prize. I don't fit into that category. Jennings is judicious with her words, like a baker carefully measuring just the right amount of flour. She floats from the past, both that of her family's and her own, to the present, her father's cancer and subsequent death. She does not indulge in sentiment and offers an honest, disarming portrait of family life, her own foibles and that of her parents, which makes the loss all the more cutting and real. Her narrative is both historically and intimately fascinating. My final new read was An Island by Karen Jennings, which of course was the natural follow-up. But now, like you, I'm going to sit back and listen to Bev's review. That holiday feeling is just coming back. Big things sometimes come in small packages. This is true of the exquisitely written novel An Island by Corin Jennings, which hit the big time last year when it was long-listed for the prestigious Booker Prize. My copy has a wonderful cover, an art drawing of a chicken on it, a prominent feature in this book. It is not light, but nor is it difficult to navigate, and that a mere 165 pages can be digested within a couple of days. It is challenging, yet cushioned by Dr. Jennings' clear, precise and fearless prose. The island lies just off an unspecified, tormented country, which has seen the worst of colonization and civil war, and, as destructive, a liberating general who has become a dictator, for there are many methods to colonize minds. 
Samuel once believed his people could be set free. His father died in that struggle, and he lost his family, his liberty, and his self-respect. In the years after his release from torture and imprisonment, he has taken solitary possession of a small lighthouse island, where the soft winds from the nearby headland occasionally touch the crouched fear hunkered in his aging body. His only human contact are two men who drop off supplies each week and dwindling interrogations from officials about the bodies that wash up on his rocky shore. Even the corpses are political. If they are merely dark-skinned refugees, then no one wants the bother of them, and Samuel disposes of them by pushing them back out to sea or incorporating their corpses into a stony, laboriously constructed to shelter his vegetables and chickens, including a literally hen-picked little red hen, which captivates what is left of Samuel's wrung-out humanity. One day, he finds a plastic oil drum, as fat as a president, and beside it yet another body, but this one is alive, if only just, and an unwelcome visitor to his cautious world. He hopes the stranger will die, but when he does not, Samuel offers him some sustenance. They share no language, though both bear the scars of brutality. The book is divided into four segments, four days describing the connection between the two men, as Samuel's conflicted struggle to help or hinder runs parallel to the stranger's desire to fit in. They are beyond the bounds of any civilization they may once have longed for, and the outcome is predicated on the most ancient of all instincts, survival, for it is all that Samuel now knows. Jennings gives no quarter to popular sentimentality or soft landings, yet there is empathy here, human frailty closely observed, human need flayed for all to see, human fear which drives the worst of our inclinations. It is one of the most important and impressive novels I've read in years. The writing is tight and luminous. I urge you to give it a chance and very much wish it had made the Booker's shortlist, along with Damon Galgut's The Promise. It would also have made a worthy winner. An Island by Corin Jennings. Thank you, Beverly Rosemiller, for that great review of An Island by Corin Jennings. You may remember a few months ago on the show, we interviewed both Karen Jennings and Damon Galgat when they were shortlisted for last year's Booker Prize, which Damon actually went on to win. Karen Jennings is an astonishingly talented author, and I'm so glad we got to hear about this book again in even more detail, and one of her previous books. What have you got? What have you got ahead? You've got ahead, Saying you'll never win That's when the grin should start You've gotta have hope Mouse and sit around the mole Nothing's half as bad as it may appear Oh wait till next year and hope Oh when your luck is bad in zero Get your chin up off the floor Mister, you can be a hero You can open any door There's nothing to it but to do it You've gotta have heart Miles and miles and miles of heart 
Oh, it's nice to be a genius, of course. But keep that old horse before the car. First, you gotta have When your luck is bad in zero, keep your chin up off the floor. Oh, mister, you can be a hero. You can open any door. There's nothing to it but to do it. You've got to have heart. Miles and miles and miles of heart. Oh, it's nice to be a genius, of course. But keep that old horse before the car. So what the heck's the use of crying? Why should we curse? Things can only get better. Cause they can't get worse. And to add to it, we've got We just played You've Got to Have Heart, sung by Max Bygraves, and you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick, all sponsored by Exclusive Books. Speaking of having a heart, Leanne Voicey and our favorite exuberant team of dancers at the Zama Dance School are here to tell us about two of the sweetest books for our younger readers. And if these young readers don't melt your heart, nothing will. At the end of our summer break, I had the pleasure of reviewing two wonderfully written and illustrated children's books with the help of some of our younger students at Zama Dance School in Guguletu. How Many Ways Can You Say Hello? and its companion book, How Many Ways Can You Say Goodbye? by Rafilwe Makhloli are just delightful in every way. Written in a clever, witty and fresh rhyming format with detailed and inspired illustrations by Anja Stukicht, we meet children from different corners of our country, and while following their hot air balloon adventure, we learn how to greet and bid farewell in lots of languages. By looking closely at the drawings which accurately depict geographical place, we learn what some people might wear and do in their home province. And by following the well-paced story, we come to understand that speaking different languages, looking different in some ways, and wearing hats of different shapes are the delicious spices which add flavor and texture to our big South African pot. Yes, the message is one of connectedness and happy endings, and also one of individual cultural pride and accepting that saying goodbye can be tougher on the heart than saying hello. Here are some thoughts from our Zama dancers. Hello. Molo. Sabon. Lujani. I. Dumela. I love the books because the drawings were beautiful. I love the proteas and they were too colorful. It was nice because Sarah made friends. It is good to learn different languages. Goodbye. Famba kashe. Hamba kashe. Samaya kantle. Hamba kakushe. Totsins. Thank you, dancers. To wrap it all up, 
How many ways can you say hello and how many ways can you say goodbye by Rafilwe Makhloli are available in hardcover and published by Penguin Random House and would make excellent gifts for children living both abroad and right here. An added bonus is that the author herself has narrated a downloadable link which can be accessed at the front of each book. Rafilo Maholi is a wildly talented Josie-based children's book author. Born in the Eastern Cape, she studied at Wits, started out in the corporate world, and then later pursued her passion for writing after she had an eye-opening assignment in Mumbai in India. Rafilo is also an aunt to many nieces and nephews, and they consider her one of them. She's the cool aunt, I guess. And she says they inspire a multitude of stories that are constantly swimming in her head, waiting to be penned and brought to life. She's passionate about writing and animating stories that bring out the best in the human spirit, stories where children can identify and celebrate themselves. Couldn't love this more if I tried. We love your work, Rafilo. Give us more. We turn to Anthony Frijon, who's here today to chat about the Auschwitz photographer by Maurizio Onis and Luca Kripper. This book has been translated from the Italian by Jennifer Higgins and was published by Penguin Random House. I've been hearing a lot of buzz about this book lately. What do you make of it, Anthony? Auschwitz-Birkenau in southern Poland was liberated on the 27th of January 1945 by the advancing Russian army. 77 years ago, closing an appalling chapter in the history of mankind. In just over four and a half years, at least one million, one hundred thousand men, women and children were systematically murdered, gassed, starved, shot, hanged, worked to death, and even killed in medical experiments. Almost one million of these innocent victims were Jews, the others, Poles, Romani, and Soviet prisoners of war. Birkenau, also referred to as Auschwitz II, was built and operated for the specific purpose of making Europe, Judenrein, free of Jews. The final solution to the Jewish question. Any survivors of this horror are today very old. Soon, there will be no one alive to tell their story. We cannot allow them to be forgotten. The last cries of the victims must never be stilled. At least we owe them that. We also owe it to future generations so that they can know. Wilhelm Brass's story is one man's reminder for us. He was deported to Auschwitz concentration camp as a Polish political prisoner, number 3444. Here he remained for nearly four and a half years. He was a trained professional photographer specializing in portraits. Being fluent in German and having the technical skills, he was sent to the Photographic Identification Unit, where he was ordered to take identification photographs of the prisoners as they entered the camp. This went on to recording the sheer evil on film, the criminal medical experiments of Joseph Mengele, and also of executions. He took them because he had no choice. He and four fellow Poles found a form of refuge from the horrors and revulsion of the outside world surrounding their photographic studio. SS guards and officers Recognizing Brass's skill at taking portraits, 
asked him to take their pictures to send to loved ones. This brought the reward of extra food, which they shared with other prisoners. Brasser felt an enormous crushing guilt at the relatively easy life he was leading compared to thousands of others, and his conscience drove him into joining the camp's resistance movement, risking his life by faking identity documents for prisoners. With Soviet troops advancing on Auschwitz, he refused SS orders to destroy his photographs, because, as he put it, the world must know. Brasser estimated that he took forty to fifty thousand photographs, identity pictures in Auschwitz. After liberation, he never took another photograph. While many of Brasser's photographs did not survive, some are on display in the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum and at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Martyrs and Heroes Remembrance Authority, Israel's official memorial to the Jewish victims of the Holocaust, the Shoah. Wilhelm Brasser died in Zywick, Poland, on the 23rd of October, 2012, at the age of 94. This is not light or easy reading, but it is necessary reading if we are to be reminded and never forget. I highly recommend The Auschwitz Photographer by Maurizio Onis and Luca Grippa, translated from the Italian by Jennifer Higgins, published by Penguin Random House. That sounds like a brutal but fascinating and really important read. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, and all the music in the show is sourced by Rick Everett and Dave Wood, like this next track, which is I Give My Heart to You by the iconic, timeless Doris Day. Me? I give my heart to books. If I give my heart to you, will you handle it with care? Will you always treat me tenderly? If I give my heart to you, will you give me all your love? Will you swear that you'll be true to me by the light that shines above? And will you sigh?
tuned into Book Choice here on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. And every month, this show is proudly sponsored by Exclusive Books. How about an interview next? Philip Todras recently chatted to Derek Frost, who wrote Living and Loving in the Age of AIDS. Interestingly, Frost has a long-term association with Cape Town specifically and South Africa in general. He and his husband of 45 years, Jeremy Norman, founded AIDS Arc, a charitable trust, in 2002 as a response to the AIDS crisis. In 2002, thousands of people in the developing world were still dying of AIDS due to unavailability and cost of ARV treatment. AIDS ARC was set up to address that urgent need, and 20 years later, they continue to fight this good fight. SFNE Daycare Center in Nyanga for Children Affected by AIDS is one example of the incredible work supported by AIDS ARC and the author of this book, Derek Frost. Let's hear what he has to say about his work and this remarkable book. Living and Loving in the Age of AIDS is written by Derek Frost. It is published by Watkins Books and distributed by Penguin Random. What made you write the book? I think that's a good starting point. I wrote the book because there's a very important story still to be told. And it's a story which I felt particularly well-placed to contribute to. The story is, is well described by the title of my memoir, living and loving in the age of AIDS, with emphasis on living and loving. To better describe my contribution to the telling of this story, perhaps you'd allow me to read two beautiful comments from amongst the very many I've received from those who've already read my memoir. Please do, yes. The first is from a a wonderful lady called Beth Kanji Goldring, who's a Buddhist nun who I met in Cambodia in 2014, and with whom we still work through the charity we founded called AIDS Arc. And she said, This memoir is not only a love letter to Jay, who is my husband, as vital as that is, but a love letter to the whole world, to art in all its forms, to nature, to exuberance, and to everyone the author speaks of. Beautifully written, often deeply poetic, filled with so much deep appreciation in spite of the hardship and pain, abounding in generosity, of material certainly, but even more of spirit, compassion, and profoundly joyous. That's a terrific summary, but also I think what we would need to emphasize is we're living through another pandemic. Mm -hmm. And what you tell us about, you go back to the early 80s, in fact, late 70s, and -hmm. you start with when it all started. And the focus it had and the vision of Gender issues was very different from what we are experiencing today. So I think that story is a very important story that you tell. Yeah, it is an important story. I mean, we were right in the middle of the gay experience or the gay celebration that followed the liberation of homosexuality from you know, being a criminal offence in that we started two very major nightclubs in London and one, the second place called Heaven, practically any gay person in the world has been to, frankly. And it was very, very important during that period of celebration. We also lived for a period of time in Florida where it was one of the places where AIDS arrived. 
and we were there at the time. And, you know, there was this incredibly kind of cruel event that happened, was that in the, in the middle of this celebration, this huge gay celebration, AIDS arrived and focused itself, sadly, on gay people. In a very negative way, and sort of take one back a step or three. We now move forward into the current day, and I think it's very important the way you tell the story can now change quite dramatically, but we still are dealing with the after effects. I think you mentioned AIDS arc. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the involvement of that, and also how you came to South Africa? Yeah, sure. Well, AIDS arc is the second AIDS-related charity we started. The first we started in the mid-'80s, then in early 90, Jay, my husband, became infected with HIV at a time when the drugs weren't available, and so basically it was a death sentence. He managed to survive what we describe as our war um, up until the period of 97 when effective medication became available, and he survived. On the back of that, we then realized that we were in a very good position to help other people stay alive by raising fairly modest sums of money, putting that amount of money into the hands of doctors and thus making the same drugs that were keeping Jeremy alive other people alive who couldn't access those drugs. And we started that work in Cape Town. You know, we'd been to Cape Town on many occasions. We knew about the history of the AIDS epidemic in South Africa and how, you know, appalling it was and the fact that drugs were not available to so many people. And we met a number of doctors here and we started our second charity called AIDS Arc, and that ultimately worked in many countries across the world, and I'm pleased to say it has helped save very, very many people's lives. You start by saying you wanted to read another extract. Could yes. we ask you to do that? Yes, yes, yes. Well, the, the other really was on the subject of love, because, you know, I would hate for people to feel that my book was a very gloomy subject all about AIDS, AIDS is obviously very central to it, but what another very lovely person said, an interesting man who has recently been appointed UK government's LGBT business champion, and he says, kindly, perhaps one of the most important love letters I have ever read, tells a story of living life to the full and giving back so much. The author's passion for life comes through on every page. Well, I think that's a very good point, and I th would encourage people to read a book that puts things in perspective in a very strong and powerful way. We've been speaking to Derek Frost, the author of Living and Loving in the Age of AIDS. Living and Loving in the Age of AIDS by Derek Frost is published by Watkins Books London and distributed by Penguin Random House. So, should it take your fancy, it's available at exclusive books. <laughs> So darling 
Here in My Heart by Al Martino, here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. We warmly welcome our own John Hanks for another interview. This one is with Chris and Matilda Stewart, and it's about their latest book called Primate. Chris and Matilda have been involved in wildlife research for over 40 years, and together they've published more than 29 books. Primate is also published by Penguin Random House. Welcome to the show, Chris and Matilda, and over to you, John Hanks. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Chris and Matilda Stewart to this edition of Book Choice. And I'm sure that many of you listening know and have used one or more of the extraordinary range of books, field guides, and mobile applications of African mammals and wildlife areas, with many of their 29 books becoming bestsellers. So let me start asking you, what prompted you to start producing field guides? I think there are two reasons. The one is that at the time we started in the, the sort of mid to late 80s, uh, there was not a great deal available. And certainly uh, what was available, we weren't particularly happy with. Um, and the second reason was basically, well, I didn't like working for other people. I was with conservation. And it was a way that you know, we could basically follow our passion. And, um, yeah, that's how it started. Well, you've really done a great job. I think you've covered an astonishing range of subjects. All your guides are so well presented with superb illustrations, but they're much more than the standard field guides with short descriptions of species involved. For example, marine mammals has not just got identification features, but aspects of behavior, diet, best places to see them, etc. The amount of detail you've summarized is so helpful, but how do you decide what to include and then how do you go about accessing the information? Well, one of the problems is that there is actually so much information and material out there. We also have a huge data bank that's been built over the years, and also 
we have contact with many colleagues who always come to the fore with new information that we can keep topping up that data bank. Um, with the paper books, there are restrictions, of course, because the publishers, they say, um, okay, it can only be so many pages. But what was interesting with the marine mammals that started uh, that could be expanded. We've also seen with our big field guides, uh, for example, our first one, the Southern African uh, Mammal Field Guide, started out at 300 pages, and then with a bit of battling with the publisher, we've now got it up to 450 pages, so you can include much more information. And this is now the case with uh, all our big field guides. I think the small pocket guides you have are absolutely brilliant. I know people really like them. I particularly liked the title Skullduggery, and of course its contents. It's a guide to East and Southern African mammal skulls. Now, how on earth did you access all those skulls? Well, over the last few years we've been collecting um, material or photographs and visiting many of the uh, big museums and a lot of the small museums worldwide. I mean, we spent weeks and weeks in the collection dungeons of the Smithsonian in Washington, the British Museum in London, the Paris Natural History Museum, and the list goes on. So it's, it's, it's an accumulation over a long period of time. And I think you're very lucky to have a person like Matilda working with you. Do you who, who does most of the writing? Matilda, let's hear your views on, on how this well, has all come together. The, Chris does the writing. He's a man of word. Uh, English is not even my first uh, language, so I keep out of that. Um, I'm in charge of the technical parts, the organizing, computer glitches, and this sort of stuff. So she's our technical boffin. I'm uh, technically illiterate, almost. <laughs> well, if it, for saying that, the standard of your um, all your productions are absolutely superb. Your latest two titles, Primates of Africa and Carnivores of Africa, superb, and I must review them in detail in a future program. What have you chosen for your next subject? Well, um, we're actually working on a series of uh, apps um, at the moment, these are covering the natural history of specific regions. We've just finished one on the Great Karoo with several others. Others will be on deal with the Kalahari, the Namib, the Makwaland. So that's our main um, thrust at the moment, you know, dealing with the application. You know, what impressed me, you travelled extensively throughout Africa. Do you still have a list of countries or protected areas you want to get to? Absolutely. I mean, we have a long, long list, and not just in Africa. I mean, we're, of course, now with the COVID thing, that's really put a bit of a kibosh, but uh, that will all come right in time. So we do have a long list, yes. Well, I'm sure they'll feature in future publications. Once again, I must congratulate you. I think that your field guides are absolutely superb. And I'm going to urge those listeners who want to find out more about you and more about the guides that are available to log on to this website, it's www.stuartonnature, all one word, that's Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, onnature.com. Log on to that and you'll find lots more about it. And I think, once again, congratulations to you and also to Penguin Random House, or Straight Nature, the publishers. They've done a superb job. Chris and Matilda, thank you very much indeed. Thank you thank very you. much.
Much appreciated. That you'll give me all your kisses Every winter, every summer, every fall When we are far apart or when you're near me Love me with all of your heart as I love you For an hour, love me always, as you love me from the start, with every beat of your heart. was Love Me With All Your Heart by Hey Corsten. I'm your host of Book Choice, Paige Nick. You may have noticed that all the music in today's show has a love angle. That's partly because Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and partly because here we sure do love books. As we head into the last segment of the show, Melvin Minar tells us about Rain Beast, which is by Nicholas Moritz and a couple of other multilingual children's book titles you may find interesting, particularly since UNESCO's Decade of Indigenous Languages starts this month. Those of us who have known the artist Nicholas Moritz and watched his eye-catching, often ticklishly delightful and colourful art over his substantive career will smile cheerfully at the awards his children's books have garnered. The latest is titled Rain Beast, a multilingual rain mythology, which appeared under the David Phillips imprint of New Africa last year and scooped a silver pendurin. 
Not the first such win for the artist, by the way. It's a gorgeous book that I am happy to have on my coffee table where fancy art books normally have their snobbish presence. Rain Beast is a book for youngsters, I suppose, and the main aim is to promote the sensual joys of languages, but I can't help myself being swept along. There is essentially something so Nicholas Maritz to the illustrations, so typical his wayward, bold, for childlike imagery, that the pictures seem to illuminate what has basically been the artist's career-long visual language, one that has always explored the vivid immediacy of simpler signs and marks. There is something of a Sangoma's mysticism, secret magic messaging to his illustrating technique, one that he confidently carries from the fine canvases he had painted over the years. Rain Beast is the famous tale of how the creatures of the earth react when the great rains fall in the drought-stricken districts of Rimfasmark in the northern province. A special place in the ancient history of the country, it is the land of old indigenous languages, hence Maritz's texts in English, Isikosa, Haikom and Afrikaans. Crisp and clear, the words sound up one another's meanings as the little verse story of how everyone is waiting for the rain unfolds. It's a delightful experience for young and old. Coincidentally, this month marks the start of UNESCO's Decade of Indigenous Languages, and I cannot think of a better gift to give to anybody. I gave a copy to my elderly neighbor. The other books, pictured and their stories told by Maritz, are equally delightful. There's How Many Frogs Can You See? A celebration of South African frogs in all their glory, a unique A to Z of South African animals, exquisitely subversive, and there's a multilingual ABC, which is an introduction to the animal and languages of Southern African region. As someone who has kept an eye on artist Nicolas Maritz's over over the years, his manner with line and color, the power of his unusual own visual vernacular, these books bring added insight and, well, great joy. And last, but most certainly not least, here on Book Choice this month, Beryl Eichenberger has been reading quite a bit of our local crime fictionista, Irma Fenter, and she was lucky enough to snag an interview with this prolific author about two of her novels, Hard Rain and Man Down, both also published by, you guessed it, Penguin Random House, and yes, also available at Exclusive Books. I love conversations with authors, especially authors I enjoy reading, like Irma Fenter. It gives such a lovely insight into their process, and for me it gives the book so much more life. Two of my favorite authors are Marita van der Feyfer and Dion Mayer, who write in Afrikaans, but translations have made their books global bestsellers. It's a testament to the skill of the translator that these novels are brought to a wider audience with such success. So it was with delight that I found Irma Fenter and her rogue crime series, namely Hard Rain and Man Down, featuring Alex Dirksen and Rana Abrahams. Translated from Afrikaans, Irma is another name to add to that group of excellent South African crime writers. She's a journalist and author, loves dark chocolate, so she tells us, and maintains that she's fascinated by strong women, morality and that fine line between right and wrong, Plenty of that in both these books. Welcome, Irma, to Book Choice, and thank you so much for coming on with us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Beryl. It's very nice to talk to you. Firstly, let's ask how you came to crime writing. I mean, you're a journalist. 
Was this part, was it inspired by your journalism beat or how did it all happen? I actually, when I watch TV and when I read books, I've always loved reading and watching crime. I mean, I'm an avid BritBox fan. <laughs> I watch all those British crime series and I read female writers, crime writers, since I can remember. Sarah Paretsky, Patricia Cornwall, those type of writers. Mm-hmm. For journalism, I was more of a general reporter my earlier on in my career. So, and then you do a little bit of crime and everything else, you know, so that worked for me. Um, it kind of gave me an idea or two. What I do now, of course, is more trade and business. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a little bit different, you know, I don't actually touch crime. But when I had to start writing my first book, I thought, what am I going to write? And it was very obvious and clear to me that it was going to be crime because that's what I consume, you know, as a as a reader. And I love the structure of a crime novel. How do you structure your plots? I mean, do your characters demand to be heard? I mean, do they hang over the door and sort of say, <laughs> put me in the book, put me in the book, or something like that? <laughs> um, structure of a crime novel is very clear. You know, there's somebody who commits the crime, there's somebody who investigates it, who, in whatever form, a journalist or, or a detective. This, and then you try and solve the crime. So it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. So within that structure, you can you have a lot of freedom and creativity, and but it is very clear that the reader in the end wants to know, you know, who done it. So within that, I love working within that structure. My characters then within that book, you always try as a fiction writer to try and create a fascinating character that people will kind of latch onto and want to know more of. Well, you've done that with Rana <laughs> and with Alex. I mean, they're very unusual detectives, sort of particularly with Rana, I, I think they're anti-heroes, so to yes. speak. I think a detective, when you write a detective novel, there's a very set, strict series of rules that you have to adhere to mm-hmm. working with and what the police would do. But when you start using a journalist or, or that type of anti-hero like Corona who's outside the system, then you can break a few rules. Right. You know, and you can look at it in a different way. And I think that you have very well in both Hard Rain and Man Down. And I know this is not the first two of the series. There are more mm. in the series, and we'll get to that right at the end. But mm. in terms of the inspiration, I mean, with Hard Rain, it's set in Tanzania, Mm-hmm. In Da, and I must say that it was very atmospheric, and I loved all the rain and everything. I mean, the, the real rain that was happening there. And then in Mandan, it's back in South Africa, but there's a bit of travelling around getting Rana mm. back because she's on the run. And I'm not going to mm. give any spoilers away <laughs> because we want people to read your books. But there's a, a an incredible pace. Where do you get your inspiration from uh, you know, for these particular books? Where did you get your ex- inspiration for these books? Well, I travel a lot for work and oh, personally. Okay. So, I mean, so that's always just an inspiration. And I think if your job as a crime writer is to entertain people, then you have to, you can take them on a journey or, a, you know, a bit of traveling while they're sitting in their armchair. So that works for me as well, always and- as a writer and as a reader. Very and much then so. You just have to open a South African newspaper and you find plots that you can't dream up. Yes, that's absolutely true. I thoroughly enjoyed these two books. I know there's another one that's about to be translated. Mm-hmm. Won't you just give this title of that? That is Red Side and it's out later this year and it focuses a lot on Sarah. 
Okay, so that's also what I wanted to just bring in very quickly. I like the fact that you have brought in other characters, and they're obviously strong women, which is what you mm. say that you absolutely love and, and you're very interested in. The lines between of morality are very finely drawn, I have to admit. There's some interesting things that happen to them. So the next books, we're going to see Sarah and then hopefully Adriana as well. Adriana is already available for people who are wondering about her backstory, and that is Circus. Circus is on the shelf. Wonderful. So it was a little bit translated out of sequence, but it's there. Thank you. Irma, let's talk again, and good luck with the upcoming books, and thank you so much. much. Thank you. And that just about does it for our February show of Loving Books here on Book Choice. I really want to thank each and every one of our reviewers for all the hard work they put into reading these books, reviewing them, reaching out to the authors and interviewing them. I also need to thank Wesley Mwande and Ewan, who are the guys who pull this show together for us every month and make us sound so good. Plus, if you missed any of the reviews or titles in today's show, Wesley, Ewan and Mwande will kindly load the podcast to fmr.co.za very shortly, so you can log in and have another listen. Plus, of course, we could never do this show without the support of our friends at Exclusive Books, so we have to thank them too. I'm your host, Paige Nick, and we'll be playing out with My Heart Will Go On by pianist Bruce Gardner. Happy reading, and we'll chat again next month.
Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people.